Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking LNG. In 2022, LNG has become the new marginal fuel, setting prices of natural gas around the world. This is a dramatic market development with consequences for traders, industry, and households. What's behind this development? What does it mean for demand? What does it mean for supply? And what does it mean for the market and the talent that services it? Our guest is Tamir Drews. Tamir has a 25-year career in and around natural gas and LNG trading, risk management, and consulting. He's the founder of Capra Energy, an independent advisory and consultancy focusing gas and LNG, and also the chief risk advisor for Green Trading Capital. As always, if you enjoy the show, please do leave us a positive review on the platform you're listening on, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Tamir, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me, Paul. I'm excited to have this discussion. It's very topical. We're talking about LNG. And as we as we record, there are swarms of LNG tankers circling Europe waiting to to offload. It's become very much not only a, a political, a geopolitical subject, it's also now, and we're going to argue in this discussion, the new marginal fuel of the world, which is a dramatic rise from where it has been over the last 20 years. Before we get too far and talk about the history of LNG and, and its current role in the global commodity markets, can you just get us all on the same page as what liquefied natural gas is and indeed why it's liquefied? Of course, Paul. So when we think about natural gas, one of the challenges has been moving that commodity from the uh, areas where it's produced and abundant to the uh, areas where it's consumed. And those two don't necessarily intersect very well. So for well over a century, gas has been moved via pipelines. And these pipelines can be above ground. They can be uh, under sea. But there's only so much you can do with pipelines, given constraints in terms of cost and in terms of distance. So it wasn't until the 1960s that it was uh, really established that natural gas could be liquefied economically, commercially, which basically involves bringing the uh, molecules down to minus 162 degrees centigrade, where uh, the gas cryogenically uh, cools and liquefies. And once it's liquefied, it was again in the 1960s that we began seeing cargoes of, of LNG being loaded onto ocean-going tankers and sent over very long distances. And so that enabled the transport of natural gas, which had been basically condensed to one six hundredth of the volume or alternatively 600 times the density that you would have under atmospheric conditions and to thus more pragmatically or economically ship it to markets like Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, etc. So that's just kind of the the high level uh, history there. Mm. So you know, if I think about the more recent history, right, say the last 20 years, you've had this slow but steady drumbeat of, of LNG expanding 
in terms of its geographic importance, as well as increasing in the number of vessels and the spot market associated with it. But it's it's been a, a slow developing market, not least because of the big capex required. Can you just give us a sense of the history of LNG over the last 20 years? Sure. So as you described, Paul, it's been a market that has required significant capital investment all along the value chain. So we're talking about liquefaction plants that are currently found in something like 20 exporting nations and import terminals of various kinds, and some of which are offshore in around 45 countries now. Uh, But even a decade ago, there were uh, only maybe half the number of importing markets, uh, even though the uh, the export club has remained comparatively stable at something like 17, 18 exporting countries. And so in addition to the import terminal investment and the uh, export projects, uh, as you mentioned, there's a very large global fleet that has been growing rapidly of LNG tankers, which can cost in the neighborhood of a, you know, a quarter of a billion dollars per vessel or much more uh, for the larger vessels. And those are really the heart of the LNG value chain because they allow cargoes to be optimized and traded based on the, let's say, most optimal spreads that might exist across markets at any given time. Mm. And I think just doing my reading for this is about 800 vessels, which was quite astonishing. Can you just give us a setup of the the cost, the relative cost of a liquefaction plant uh, and time to build versus a regasification plant? Because that's has a, an important part in the story we're about to tell. And then also, I guess, because of these large capital expenditures required, that's also driven the market to be very much sort of long-term structures as opposed to spot markets, right? Just to get the financing for these these facilities. Sure, sure. To your first question, Paul, in terms of the investment required for kind of a typical LNG uh, production project, historically, the kind of threshold or benchmark has been a billion dollars or less per million tons of production capacity, okay? So if you look at the average, uh, what we call train, uh, a train is basically that unit of an LNG plant that can do everything from kind of process the feed gas to liquefying it to loading it into available uh, storage capacity at the project. The average train worldwide is about 4 million tons. Okay, so we're looking at a a cost benchmark of, let's say, up to $4 billion per train. More recently, we've seen a number of higher cost projects that have exceeded that benchmark quite a bit. Many of them were in Australia in the uh, early 2010s. And then that was followed by more competitive projects in places like the U.S., which have been probably more in the order of about, let's say, one third less than that benchmark. So that's kind of the relative neighborhood of costs you would expect to see on the uh, liquefaction side. And in terms of development timelines, they've actually gotten shorter over time, but I would say that something like four to five years is probably 
you know, a reasonable uh, kind of lead time for a project to get to uh, commissioning. Yep. And then on the, the regas side? So on the regas side, it's really quite interesting that the onshore kind of traditional import and regasification terminals have had you know, much lower capital investment requirements than the production facilities, but they've had uh, kind of similar lead times when it comes to uh, coming online. But what's really changed on the import side is out of those hundreds of vessels you mentioned on the seas, about three dozen of them are what we call FSRUs. Now, that's short for floating storage and regasification units. So those are ships that can do everything that an LNG carrier can do, but they can also serve as offshore import terminals. Mm -hmm. This is what Accelerator, you know, one of clients of ours have been pioneering, right? Exactly. And so to the extent that you don't have to do the same level of permitting and engineering and construction, et cetera, that's involved with onshore, the offshore terminals have allowed new import markets to come online within a matter of even in some cases months rather than the years and years it normally takes to put an an onshore terminal online. Mm. Which is going to be important for this story, but I think it's worth pausing there and just recognizing the magnitude of these bets that companies have had to make on LNG five, six, ten years ago for it to be in vogue today, you know, where we've seen prices essentially quadruple and more. But these are these are very long-term investments. They they do take considerable effort to get online. And that's been typified by, you know, what you've seen on the US Gulf Coast, where first of all, obviously Schneer built there a regas plant long ago in the expectations of of the US being a net importer of gas. Now that's become it the first liquefaction facility, but others are still in various stages of development, right? I mean, it really is quite a big bet that these these companies and countries have made and not always paid off as you alluded to. Can you just one word on the on the spot market? How did that get developed? What what do we mean by that? So the spot market is also kind of a relatively new component of the overall uh, industry in that if you look back something like even 10 years, maybe at best one in 10 cargoes was being delivered along kind of a timeline that we might call spot, which would be say next month or kind of two months out. So we've gone from you know, less than 10% of cargoes being kind of true spot traded, spot delivered cargoes to now something like a third, right? So the evolution and development of the spot market has helped to really commoditize LNG and to make it a fungible entity in that it's no longer uh, point-to-point voyages of cargoes that have had their whole lives mapped out for them even before they were produced. For instance, you might be a, a, a gas utility in Japan and you have a long-term uh, sale and purchase agreement or SPA with uh, Malaysia or Indonesia or another producer. And those cargoes being produced out of you know, Bontang or, or one of those facilities are basically going to go 
from that project to Japan, and then the ship will turn around and come back again. And you kind of have this, what we call like a tram line or point to point kind of uh, rinse repeat where those cargoes would not be traded in an open market or optimized against you know, available spot cargoes or competing offerings. And so that was the business 10 plus years ago. And we've kind of moved toward, hey, if someone needs some volumes, they aren't uh, kind of stuck to having to uh, rely on kind of inflexible, long-term kind of reliability and security oriented deals. Instead, they can actually go into a, an increasingly liquid and price transparent market to find, you know, what it is that suits the, their timing and their specifications and their pricing needs. So it's a very different market than it once was. Mm. And it's that, I guess, liquidity, that responsiveness through the spot market that has enabled LNG to become this new marginal fuel for the world what do you mean by that and can you sort of start that story perhaps with asia and then bring it up to the present day uh yeah of course paul um yeah so in terms of uh, what we might mean by marginal fuel i would start by well maybe this is the long answer <laughs> so if we look at kind of world gas demand right so the world consumes something like 4,000 billion cubic meters, 4,000 BCM per year, okay? Now, historically, about 500 BCM, which I guess is what, 12% of that, has moved across regions via pipelines, okay? What happened over the past couple of years for the first time is that the amount of LNG that has moved between different regional markets now exceeds the amount of pipeline gas. And so when it comes to a big market like Europe, where it was pipeline gas that once would either ramp up or down to meet incremental demand needs, that's no longer the case. It's no longer even possible. Instead, Europe, like Asia did before it, needs to rely on marginal supplies of LNG in order to balance its overall market. So the implication of that is that if LNG is now the mechanism by which Europe balances its gas supply with its gas demand, then LNG is also the mechanism by why, by which price is set, right? It's going it's going to be the marginal kind of price driver. Uh, so that's the big change toward LNG becoming the marginal fuel. If I had to encapsulate it, so so let's start with because that's been the case in Asia for, for some time. But just so I get this straight, it's the marginal LNG is now the marginal fuel within the global natural gas market. What ramifications does that then have for the price of oil, for coal, for other alternative fuels? Right. So interestingly, when pipeline gas was kind of the marginal source of supply within Europe, 
the pricing of that pipeline gas was essentially in competition with other sources of gas and would in effect set the marginal cost and price, right? So for years and years, Europe, which relied on pipeline gas for most of its consumption and specifically on Russian gas for over a third of its needs, was getting gas that was priced off of an oil index, right? So in other words, the competitiveness of pipeline gas shipped via Gazprom would depend on these oil indexed formulas, attractiveness versus LNG and other competing supply sources, right? So now that we've broken away from that paradigm where it's no longer the lion's share of supply that's indexed to oil, in fact, it's a kind of a diminishing minority of gas going into Europe is priced off of oil. That means that we're seeing more of what we call gas-to-gas competition, where LNG needs to be competitive with gas hub pricing in Europe. Yeah, so I think so. I think that's the key change in dynamic. There's a decoupling away from oil, and there's much more of a relationship now between gas hub pricing, such as, say, TTF, the Dutch Tidal Transfer Facility, which is the main European gas benchmark, and something like JKM, which is the Japan-Korea marker, which is the main LNG world price benchmark. So we're seeing high correlations there that were not present three years ago, and we're seeing very low correlations between LNG pricing and something like Brent crude oil. Excellent. Okay, so I want to come back to price in a minute because it has other implications as well. But firstly, so long story short, so for a long time now, Asia's gas has been priced to LNG. We're now seeing it suddenly it's gone global, ultimately as a consequence, arguably, at least the proximal cause is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Can we just dig into that that, that a little bit? How How much gas was being imported by Europe by pipeline? And how much of that has already been replaced by LNG, setting up this new LNG being the marginal mechanism to price natural gas around the world? Sure. So last year, if we were to look at kind of greater Europe, where I would include, you know, not just the EU, but also, you know, the UK, as well as Turkey and, uh, and Ukraine, the total imports were on the order of about 167 BCM last year. About 80% of that went away this year. I mean, the year's not over, but you know, w- one of my activities is basically running a glo- global gas uh, balance model called CapReview. So we're showing that 80% of the Russian gas versus last year will not be coming into Europe, okay? So that equates to, you know, if we if we talk in terms of millions of tons of LNG equivalent, that's roughly 100 million tons of LNG equivalent that isn't in the market. So, you know, so to your question, Paul, like how has Europe dealt with that 
and you implied obviously that LNG has played an important role and it has, but an even more important role has been played by uh, demand destruction, right? So about half of that deficit, that lost gas, uh, so we're talking something like 50 million tons has basically gone away. You know, if you want to call it quote unquote replaced, it's been replaced by demand destruction. We're seeing something like 12% reduction in demand for the Europe region this year. Now that's unprecedented and it's also not very healthy. No, no. Uh, yeah. But, but then if you look at the other half of that 100 million, most of that is indeed LNG. So the year-on-year increase in LNG imports is on the order of about 45 million tons. Okay, so we can think of this as kind of half of the Russian gas being replaced through demand going away, and then the other half being replaced through higher LNG imports, which are in some cases maxing out capacity and creating a whole host of questions, which I'm sure we can explore here. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Let's talk about price or demand elasticity, let's say. But behind, I mean, that's quite still quite astonishing, right? The amount of LNG that has been imported into Europe, that 50 million tons, and the amount of terminals that Europe is investing in, uh, regasification terminals, to be able to capture that. And again, it's typified as we speak, this sort of number of tankers swirling off Europe. You know, I think there's 250 or so waiting to deliver. And some of that is a, a contango story familiar to, to the commodity traders listening. But just can you just give us some sense of how many terminals have been built this year? How many are forecast to be built next year? And is there a likelihood that, or the expectation is, that Europe will solely rely on LNG as opposed to Russian pipeline gas in the future or could do so? Sure. So... As you rightly point out, Paul, there's just been a real race to try and get as much new capacity online as quickly as possible within Europe. And so we expect to see two to three terminals coming online by the end of this year, like probably Italy, Finland, and one in Germany in uh, Wilhelmshaven. That's a Uniper uh, project. Uh, and the German uh, terminal is one of four which was authorized or signed by the uh, German government immediately after the Bundestag uh, passed the uh, LNG Acceleration Act around June, I believe it was. And so they went ahead with a program to spend something like 3 billion euros in investment to get four new LNG projects online as quickly as possible with a lot of the uh, process being a lot of the hurdles, a lot of you know notice periods and hearing periods and everything being significantly shortened so that these projects could come online as soon as possible. And so uh, in addition to those four German terminals, we're looking at, again, well north, I'd say, of 
10 terminals coming on uh, over the next two years. So the amount of capacity will be very significant. You know, again, Germany, as an example, those four terminals should bring in, well, Germany had no terminals <laughs> before. So, so for them, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a full increase, but uh, they should be able to bring in something like 27 BCM, billion cubic meters, with their uh, new terminals, which are all FSRUs for the time being. And that is about a third of their demand. Uh, so that's, that's a really good start there. That should replace the amount of Russian gas that they recently were using. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I forget there were some other questions, uh, good ones you raised. Yes. Okay, so I want to come back to where that gas is going to come from and the implications for global natural gas prices, producers, etc. One of the things I've got here in my notes, which I, is demand elasticity, which has never, it's never been tested before. Can you just you know, talk to that? What, what do you mean by that? And what are its implications for the traded markets? Now, that's a, a great question, Paul. Thanks. I think what I mean by that is that we never saw price levels jump to 20, 30, 40, 50 plus dollars and stay there for a prolonged period of time. And what I mean by that is for a period that would be long enough for consumers to make substantial changes in their behavior. So this has really been a test of what happens on the demand side when you have these extreme price levels that are sustained for a, a period of months and months. And in my firm, we're seeing significant response to these high price levels as far, you know, as early as you know, March and April of this year. And not to toot our horns, but we were already publishing and telling clients that if we could sustain that type of a demand response, storage will fill up and this winter won't be much of a problem in terms of getting through with adequate supplies. Now, of course, that doesn't minimize the pain involved in not consuming gas for essential needs, but in terms of having enough gas to get through the winter and provide everyone who uh, requires or, or needs consumption, that would not be an issue if these price levels are sustained. So the market has basically done what it needed to do to rebalance supply with demand at these price levels. So that's what we mean by demand destruction. And now, in fact, we have seen, as you pointed out, there has been a real change in the curve where short-term spot gas pricing is at a steep discount to pricing going into the winter. And that's because storage has essentially been filling up. And that means there's not much to do with all those cargoes that are offshore Spain and the rest of Europe. And so they're sitting around essentially in floating storage. And some of those have been pre-sold against the forward curve into December, January delivery slots, which are at a very significant premium to the spot market. So, you know, we call that the cash and carry or time spread arbitrage trade. Yep. And actually prices, I think, went negative yesterday, which was a, an interesting moment. Yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was quite interesting, yes. 
But fundamentally, though, how much of that sort of, yes, we've seen demand destruction, but how much of that has been enabled by government, various government policies supporting industries? Is some of that, to some extent, artificial? Or, you know, is that a, how sustained is that, I, I guess? Yeah, so our concern around uh, price controls is that artificially or externally imposed pricing or price caps may incentivize consumption to reach levels that can't be met by existing uh, resources uh, on the supply side. And then on the other side of the supply-demand balance, setting a, an artificially low price within Europe may disincentivize supplies. I think we set up and established that LNG is now crucial to the, the world natural gas market and prices around the world. What does that mean for industry participants, the traders? I think it means that all of the capabilities and all of the kind of mindsets that used to accompany fungible, commoditized, tradable markets that we, I know that you and I have worked in in our careers, are now very much in demand and very much needed for the LNG business. And that just wasn't the case 15, 20 years ago when LNG was more of the afterthought. Instead of being a secondary consideration, LNG is now the most, let's say, abundant marginal source of supply that has this kind of flexibility, as we discussed, in terms of demand elasticity in response to price. But also, I'd say even earlier than that, we saw supply elasticity in response to price. Uh, and we saw that in 2020 when prices, instead of reaching stratospherically high levels, they went to bargain basement levels of below $2 per MMBTU for a good part of that year. And that, of course, being the uh, first year of the uh, COVID pandemic, when in response, we actually saw many cargoes being canceled, specifically out of the US market, where off-takers are able to exercise their right to cancel cargoes, usually with something like 30 to 60 days notice. And they did cancel something like 175 cargoes over the space of the summer months. And that took supply out of the market that ultimately rebalanced the global supply with global demand and brought prices back to, let's say, more reasonable levels. So in essence, we saw a price floor that was set by supply elasticity, which is the inverse of having this kind of price ceiling that we've more recently been seeing as a result of demand elasticity. So we're seeing both sides of the coin within the space of only two years. Now, that's maybe a long-winded way, Paul, of answering the question, which is, hey, there's volatility and there's now correlation such as we've never seen before and price swings and levels such as we've never seen before. And 
Alongside that, as we've discussed, a lot more spot trading, but also a lot more financial trading. You know, there was almost no financial trading until the past five years or so. And so now that we have exchange and OTC traded financial swaps and futures and even options on an LNG index, mostly JKM, it means that all of those skill sets and capabilities around you know, risk metrics and volatility modeling and trading and optimization in terms of having a portfolio with all of this different optionality and all these different dynamics, those were the kinds of areas that you might have one or two people working at some of the larger firms a decade ago. But now there are entire teams being dedicated to the question of how do we optimize our fleet? How do we optimize our portfolio? Um, how do we model volatility and forward price curves and all the other things that, you know, as a veteran of the industry, we had to develop those things you know, for conventional natural gas and for electricity and petroleum. And luckily for guys like me, we're now working on those same problems with, within LNG. Uh, what does this mean for natural gas traders? You know, for obviously historically, for the most part, if you've been a, a natural gas trading business or, or whatever it might be, marketing and optimization based in the US, you've largely been insulated, cut off from LNG prices. Are, are those organisations now scrambling to get the the talent and the skill sets and the insight that? Um, to, to help them understand you know, what's going on in the LNG market now that it's the main driver of price and, and volatility around it for their markets. And that's exactly right, Paul. I think you know, if you'd, if you'd uh, suggested five years ago when we, uh, we launched our uh, platform, Cap Review, that one of our main uh, client bases would be uh, hedge funds, I would say, well, why would hedge funds be interested in physical LNG cargo pricing and the supply-demand balance for global LNG? Well, the answer is that, as you suggest, it's driving what's happening with TTF. It's it's even driving what's happening with Henry Hub, right? Um, you know, we, we recently saw a fire uh, at Freeport where a significant amount of U.S. capacity went down, we immediately saw a spike in both European gas prices as well as LNG prices. And interestingly, we saw a large drop in the U.S. markets in Henry Hub, right? So in other words, the demand for those U.S. cargos where the U.S. is heading toward number one producer status in terms of where it ranks alongside Qatar and Australia, which round out the top three producers, how many cargoes of LNG are coming out of the U.S. is a key driver to the U.S. domestic balance as well. So it's it's really having uh, implications for pricing, volatility, correlation across the world. So my, my other question is around financial trading. You mentioned there a rising volume around JKM indices. Do you see that expanding to other regions? Are there the need for more financial instruments to be developed? Can you talk to that a little bit? Um, yeah, I, I think you know having a, an increasingly liquid Northeast Asian LNG index and benchmark has been 
enormously helpful. You know, we're seeing more and more physical and financial trade against that index, which, you know, go figure, uh, you know, the LNG market is using an actual LNG index to price deals, right? That's something that wasn't done until recently. But interestingly, there's also the need for a European LNG benchmark and a US LNG benchmark. And we have those and they are listed on the exchanges, you know, whether it's CME or ICE, but they just haven't gotten the same traction that JKM has, at least not yet. I do think that will change over the coming years, but it's going to be a process. On a more macro level, what does this mean for flows of, of natural gas? You know, how is Europe going around securing this supply that it's committing to? And what does it mean for natural gas prices, particularly, for example, say, in the US, where, you know, an entire petrochemical industry along the US Gulf Coast has become quite accustomed to lower gas prices, especially given, you know, obviously, Europe has been in particular focused on energy transition over the last couple of years, and has has not been incenting hydrocarbons to flow to the region. I think that, as you implied, Paul, Europe, especially, I think we can we can safely say has been kind of at the forefront of trying to put the entire range of conventional fuels behind them and really focus on the energy transition. And so just last year, it was really difficult to sell LNG contracts, you know, midterm, longer term contracts into any European customer. Whereas this year, there's been a complete about face on that. I mean, I think Europe as the leading actor on the energy transition front has now, I think, really reassessed what LNG's role and what global or natural gas's role is, you know, within the overall energy economy. And I think, quite frankly, has a more realistic kind of approach in that they are now signing quite a few deals. You know, every month we're seeing more and more. We just recently saw Uniper with Woodside. We saw Shell with Energy Transfer. We've seen Equinor sign for long-term volumes out of Chenier and many others, right? So we've gone from no deals <laughs> to, to a plethora of activity to try and line up supplies, not for next year, but for the next 20 years. So that, that's a very different orientation than we would have seen. And it has been catalyzed in large part by this kind of yanking away of pipeline gas as the key uh, dependency that Europe had uh, in terms of its fuel source. The other big, uh, I guess, challenge that we've been alluding to as well is on the talent side, or at least the impact. 20 years ago or 15 years ago when we were HC were placing LNG experts, you know, it was typically around long-term structured deals. So it would be commercial originators, lawyers, whatever it may be. And there were relatively few spot cargo trader seats out there, just as a consequence of the liquidity you alluded to. Um, 
you know, how is the industry going to meet the demand for LNG expertise as it becomes the dominant pricing driver for the world's natural gas markets? Um, you know, is this, is this uh, I guess, obviously an investment in training, you know, from the likes of your firm, but also taking people from, say, analogous markets like oil traders and so forth who are familiar with these global markets, waterborne, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's really the big question, Paul. I think, you know, there have been, as I'm sure you've seen, different strategies for kind of filling that uh, need. One of them has been to try to repurpose conventional gas people who have familiarity with things like storage, trading and optimization and modeling and have them apply that to, say, LNG ships or onshore LNG storage. You know, the same applies to pipeline traders, transportation, conventional gas transport people. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of similarities and a lot of, I think, transferable ideas and skills. But you also have to be careful because an oil trader doesn't have to deal with things like oil off, where you lose a piece of your cargo volume every day that it's on the ocean. And an oil trader doesn't have to think, well... The product that will arrive is actually going to have a different chemical composition and specification than the product that left the production facility because of things like, you know, boil off gas and heal gas. Uh, so there are, I think, important LNG specific uh, knowledge sets that will require significant investments in training. And that's another strategy, you know, bringing in people who just kind of learn the energy business from the perspective of LNG. One of the things I get to do quite a lot of is training, and that enables me to see people either being kind of re-pivoting and repurposing their skill sets, and then other people who are building kind of entirely new skill sets. And, you know, luckily, I think there's success stories in, uh, in, in both of those camps. So final question, I mean, obviously, the main driver behind this development and evolution of LNG to the, the top spot, uh, so to speak, is, is largely driven by the events in Ukraine and the political ramifications of that. Do you see a scenario where if peace were to be achieved in, the, in Ukraine in relatively short order, that the gas would start flowing from Russia again? Or do you think Europe's moved beyond that and LNG is now going to be its strategic, at least focus for hydrocarbons in, in energy transition? Uh, I, I think that the concept of natural gas as transitional fuel will still be present and is in fact still present, even in things like the LNG Acceleration Act that we discussed, the legislation made it very clear that the, these billions of euros that will be invested over the coming years will be invested in a way that enables or supports kind of repurposing of the new natural gas infrastructure toward hydrogen with time. But when we say with time, that could mean uh, at least 20 years. Well, uh, <laughs> if ever, in the case of hydrogen. Well, Tamir, it's been a real yeah. pleasure having you on. I know, obviously, LNG knowledge and understanding is in great demand. Perhaps you can let us know where people can find you and Capra Energy and the services that you offer. Sure. Uh, 
I appreciate that, Paul. You can easily find us at capraenergy.com. And if you're interested in the global gas balance and how to do some interactive modeling, uh, kind of what-if analysis around that, that would be found at capraview.com. And it's been a, a true pleasure to speak with you, Paul. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, I, I hope we can have you on again in the in the future to uh, give us an update on where LNG is. I think it's been a fascinating story. And uh, thanks very much for your time. That would be terrific. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.